Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. Last week, we were given an introduction to the theory of evolution by our teacher, Mr. Michael Penfold, regarding 14 so-called proofs of evolution and the problems that they entail. Today's broadcast is a continuation of this presentation where Mr. Penfold takes up the supposed three great facts that prove evolution. Homology, embryology, and vestigial organs, explaining what they are and the difficulties associated with each one. We trust that the information presented here will be a help to believers as they face the opposition of skeptics who refuse to believe the Bible regarding matters of life and origins. Let's break in then with part two of this three-part series. What is a fruit fly? Well, it's a fly that feeds on fruit, tiny little creature. A very interesting creature in relation to mutation because it has a reproductive cycle every two weeks and a very simple genetic structure, only between four and eight pairs of chromosomes. And what the evolutionists have done to try and prove their theory is they've taken a bunch of these fruit flies and subjected the poor critters to x-rays. And they've x-rayed them and zapped them and x-rayed them and zapped them, hoping to see what mutations can produce. They even managed to produce a second pair of wings on one of these poor creatures, which was absolutely catastrophic for the poor creature, because he couldn't fly at all, the little balancers that he normally uses for balancing turned into wings, got in the way. He couldn't mate, so it was no good for natural selection. And it was all artificially maintained. What do we start with? Fruit flies. What do we end with? Fruit flies. There's not one fruit fly in the world that's any less of a fruit fly than all the other fruit flies in the world. In fact, this was a wonderful experiment to disprove evolution. If evolution is saying that mutations selected by nature have produced everything that we see today, then if we could produce millions of mutations and actually select them ourselves, then we would be mimicking what evolution has done. But in trying to mimic it, they were completely unsuccessful. I've been recently going back through this book by Charles Darwin, The Descent of Man. In his original book, Origin of Species, he doesn't deal with the evolution of man. He felt that that might prejudice uh, people accepting his theories. But in this book, he goes into it in great detail. There's a chapter in here where he gives what he calls three great classes of facts to prove that we came from ape-like creatures. Those three great classes of facts were, number one, similar bodily structures. Secondly, similar embryonic development. And thirdly, vestigial organs, what he called rudiments. Now mark this. This is what Darwin thought were three great classes of facts. Now let's look at them one by one. The first one, homology. Homology is basically saying that when you find organs, bodily organs, which are similar in structure between animals and humans and so on, that proves they had a common 
ancestor. For example, from your shoulder down to the tip of your fingers, you can match bone for bone with a rat, a dog, a horse, a bat, a porpoise, a man. You can match it bone for bone. And so the evolutionist says, well, if evolution's true, that makes perfect sense because we all come from a common ancestor. But if creation's true, why would God have made everybody with the same structure? Well, that doesn't speak of a God who's very inventive, does it? And so Theodosius Dobzhansky made the famous statement, nothing in biology makes sense without evolution. So, Darwin's claim is, structural similarity proves common ancestry. Or does it? Let's think about this. Your arm and your leg are profoundly similar in structure. You can match the radius and the ulna with the tibia and the fibula. You can match the humerus with the femur. You can match your arm with your leg structurally. Where does evolution say our arm came from? Evolution says our arms evolved from the pectoral fins of the fish, a lobe fish like the coelacanth. Where does evolution say our legs came from? It says our legs came from the pelvic fins of the fish. You see the inconsistency there? Our arms and legs are similar, and yet they don't have common descent. So an evolutionist says, a horse leg and a human leg are similar, so they came from a common ancestor. But it looks at a human arm and a human leg and says, no, they didn't have a common ancestor. Well, which is it? Do you see the inconsistency in the homology argument? In fact, since the coming into being of molecular biology, we find out that similar organs in different animals actually come by a different genetic pathway, which they wouldn't if they were involved from a common ancestor. In fact, they come from different parts of the embryo. Is that the extraordinary proof we need to prove that a bacterium turned into Beethoven by chance mutations selected by nature? Certainly not. Well, let's move on to Darwin's second major fact. Similar embryonic development. Living at the same time as Darwin was a German by the name of Ernst Haeckel, a racist biologist from Germany. He drew diagrams to show that embryos from various classes of vertebrates were very, very similar. He omitted frogs and marsupials and others that were a bit too tricky to deal with. And he drew them all the same size, even though they, they're very different from, let's say, one millimeter to ten millimeters. But he drew them, he's basically saying that humans and pigs and chickens and salamanders, in the embryo stage, they're all pretty much the same. They're almost exactly the same. And that just simply makes it absolutely obvious that we've all come the same way, we've all evolved the same way, and we all have a common ancestor. Darwin called it a marvellous in fact, in this Descent of Man book, on page 42, he says, the embryos of a man, a dog, a seal, a bat and a reptile can at first be hardly distinguished from each other. And he goes on to say that because humans and other vertebrates pass through the same early stages of development, we ought to frankly admit their community of descent. In other words, Darwin is saying, those drawings by Haeckel show us clearly that we all come from a common ancestor. There's only one problem. Ernst Haeckel faked the drawings. The top line on your screen is Ernst Haeckel's fake drawings. The second line is a photograph of what they actually look like. Does a human and a rabbit and a chicken and a turtle and a salamander and a fish look similar at that stage? No, they look vastly different. So Darwin's great fact is actually a fiction. And yet, even though this is one of the most famous fakes in biological history, 
Darwin wrote a letter to his friend Asa Gray on September the 10th, 1860, in which he called embryology by far the strongest evidence in favour of his theory. Now what are you going to do with that? The man who changed the way the world thinks about evolutionary origins and about biology rested as his strongest case on something that was a deliberate fraud. Now let's move on to the third great fact of Darwin, vestigial organs. In his book, The Descent of Man, Darwin speaks about some organs of our body which are absolutely useless. Now you're not talking about things you can do without. You can do without your little finger, you can do without your arm if you have to. That's not a vestigial organ. He's talking about things that are absolutely useless leftovers from (coughs) evolution. He lists things like the appendix, chest hair, wisdom teeth, certain ear and scalp muscles, and one that I've got on your screen there, the coccyx. That's the lower end of your backbone. Is the coccyx a vestigial organ? No, it's not. The coccyx forms the point of insertion for the gluteus maximus, which is a muscle that runs down the back of your thigh. And it also is the point of insertion for ligaments, which are used during childbirth and when you go to the bathroom. If you had your coccyx removed, you would have to be retrained to use other muscles to enable you to go to the bathroom. That is not a vestigial organ. In fact, all those 100 so-called vestigial organs are now acknowledged by many scientists to be necessary and all part of the works. Well, you say, okay, well, Darwin got it a bit wrong, but, you know, Darwin did live a long time ago and he was very advanced for his time, but of course we've come a long way since then and and we've now got genetics and molecular biology, so we don't really need those things. Even if those things are on, we've got plenty of other proofs. I mean, for instance, look at, look at bacteria. Look at the way they can evolve to become resistant to antibiotics. Is that a good proof for evolution? Is that the extraordinary proof we're looking for? To prove that bacterium has changed into Beethoven by accidental mutations selected by... Is that the proof? Is this it? Well, think about it. Take an antibiotic called streptomycin. That's what's been used for years against tuberculosis and typhoid and spinal meningitis and so on. Because it's been used very frequently and very widely, we're now in a situation where bacteria have evolved resistance to that antibiotic. Does that prove evolution? Well, it all depends how the bacterium evolves resistance to the antibiotic. Let me tell you what happens. Normally what happens is the streptomycin goes in to the bacterium and attaches itself to the ribosome. That then shuts down the protein sequencing in the bacterium and it can no longer reproduce and so it dies and you get better. But if there's a a mutation in the ribosome, in the bacterium, a certain kind of mutation which means that the antibiotic streptomycin can no longer attach to it, it survives. Does that prove that everything that we see today came by chance mutations from an original replicating molecule in a warm pond millions of years ago? Certainly not. Because what's happening is this. Resistance is gained, according to Dr. Lee Spetner, who's an expert in this, resistance is gained not by adding something, but by losing it. You see, to have evolution, you've got to have new, meaningful sequences of genetic information being added in You've got to have a building up of specified complex information in the genome. What you're getting here is a loss of genetic information, not a gain. It'd be like when the police came in here tonight to arrest everybody and handcuff everybody. 
If I had no arms, I would have an advantage over you. They couldn't handcuff me. But I don't think that's very much of an advantage, do you? That's the kind of advantage that we're seeing here. Now then, let's go on to another molecular situation. A disease called sickle cell anemia. I've been to India a few times where this is a, a major problem. In your red blood cells, you have a protein called hemoglobin. A single mutation in that hemoglobin eventually changes your red blood cells from that lovely donut shape to that sickle shape. If you inherit this mutant protein from both of your parents, you'll probably die. If you inherit it from one parent, so you may have the symptoms if you climb a tall mountain, but other than that, you'll probably be alright. But there's one thing that an evolutionist points to here and says there's a byproduct from this, there's an advantage that's conferred upon someone who's got this. Does anybody know what it is? They can't get? They can't get malaria. A byproduct of this disease is that you can't get malaria. Again, it's a loss of complexity, not a gain. I would liken it to, um, let's say you're working on Word on your PC. You're typing up a document with your word processing package and there's a corruption gets into your word processing package. But the byproduct of that corruption is there's a certain type of email virus which will no longer attack your computer because you've got a little bit of corruption in your Word document. Aren't you glad you got that corruption in your Word document? Now you're safe from that email virus. You see, that's not building complex specified information. That is actually a mutation, a deleterious mutation which doesn't prove evolution at all. So the hemoglobin mutation tells us nothing about where the hemoglobin came from in the first place. You say, well, what about molecular similarity? I remember when I went to the British Museum of Natural History, one of the first things I came across in the human evolution exhibit was a claim that chimpanzees and humans share 98% of the same DNA. And that sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? You know, if they're that near to us, we must be related. Well, there are some anomalies with this whole idea of molecular similarity. First of all, according to Nature magazine, May... 27th, 2004, it's not 98%, it's 92.3%. You say, oh well, give or take a few percentage, who cares? Well, you obviously don't know much about genetics if you think you can throw away percentage points. There's a huge difference. Take, for example, a simple illustration. A cloud, a jellyfish and a watermelon are all 98% water. Oh, and who cares? I mean, that means they're all the same, doesn't it? See, 2% can make a vast difference. But it's easy to take a very selective issue what about other molecular issues? What if we take the number of chromosomes? Now, if evolution was true, you'd think that simple creatures like bacteria would have a very few chromosomes and complicated creatures like ourselves would have the most. That's not the way it works. If you take fruit flies, you've got four pairs of chromosomes. Humans, 23 pairs. Gypsy moth, 31 pairs. Some types of chrysanthemums, 99 pairs. That renders badly for the theory of evolution. What about the amount of DNA? You know, you'd have thought we'd have had more than anybody else. That's not true. Some creatures have got more than us. What about the distance between proteins? You take the hemoglobin of a lamprey, little jawless fish. You find out that it's equidistant from amphibians and birds and marsupials and humans. There's not a continuous stretching. It's equidistant, which it wouldn't be if evolution was true. Now, let me just go back for the last two, the Natural History Museum. There we have one of the most famous so-called proofs for evolution, that is Archaeopteryx. What is Archaeopteryx? It's a pigeon-sized extinct bird 
Fossils of it have been found in Germany and coming two years, the discovery of it, coming two years after Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, it seemed to be a gift, a powerful proof of Darwin's theory. You say, why was it a powerful proof of Darwin's theory? Well, it had feathers and a beak, perching feet and a wishbone, like a bird. But shockingly, it had teeth and claws and a long bony tail, like a reptile. So is it a bird or is it a reptile? Well, it was obviously a missing link between the two. And there we have it. This is the extraordinary proof we need to prove evolution. Well, let's just not get carried away. Let's take the issue of teeth. Some reptiles don't have teeth. Turtles don't have teeth. Several ancient birds that everybody agrees were birds do have teeth. So teeth are not the issue. Well, what about the claws? This bird had claws on its wings. I mean, birds just don't have claws on their wings. So it must have been a reptile. Well, again, don't get carried away. There's a bird in Africa called the Turaku, born with claws on its wings. There's a bird in South America called the Watson. I've got a photograph of it here. It has claws on its wings. I've got a photograph of the claw. That is a close-up photograph of the claw on the Hotsin's wing. When it falls out of the nest, it can crawl back in. Later on in its existence, those claws disappear. So, teeth don't prove it. Claws don't prove it. But let's just think about this. If we were going to prove evolution from reptiles to birds, what we would need would not be fully formed feathers. We would need partly formed feathers. Every single feature of the Archaeopteryx is a fully formed feature. In other words, it's not part way between two things. It is a mosaic of several features. Now, that's seen elsewhere in nature. What about the duck-billed platypus? It has fur and suckles its young, like a mammal. But it lays eggs like a reptile. It has webbed feet and a bill like a duck. And it has a poisonous spur on its rear leg, like a snake's fang. It's a mosaic. And so was the Archaeopteryx a mosaic. And so the ardent evolutionist, Pierre Lecomte de Noy, he said, we are not even authorised to consider the exceptional case of the Archaeopteryx as a true link. An animal displaying characters belonging to two different groups cannot be treated as a true link as long as the intermediary stages have not been found and as long as the mechanisms of this transition remain unknown. Let us go to proof number 14, Eighth Man. This whole subject fascinates me. In the Natural History Museum, I took this photograph, most of these photographs were taken with my own camera in the museum. There is a four foot high chimpanzee looking creature. The creature that you see on the right was built based upon the bones you see on the left. That's all they had to go on to build the creature on the right. This is an Australopithecine, a southern ape. This particular one it was called Lucy because when it was found by Donald Johansson in 1974 the Beatles song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was playing on the radio so they decided they'd call it Lucy. Now I'm particularly interested in this one because I believe it is a complete fraud. If you look at Lucy you'll see a sort of interesting thoughtful look on her face. You'll see the completely human hands that she has. Now notice they've given her completely human hands but notice here there are no bones for the human hands. They've given her, you can't see it so well on the screen, but that's completely human-looking feet, based on nothing. So they gave her completely human feet, completely human hands, without a bone to go on. I wrote a letter to the head of the department there in the uh, Natural History Museum and questioned him about that, because to me that's a very misleading exhibit. 
See, as you go round, you, you find other misleading looking photographs. This is another photograph from the Natural History Museum. Here they've drawn these creatures, half human, half chimpanzee. Reminded me very much of the picture that was put into the London Illustrated News in 1922. Somebody was in Nebraska one day and they dug up this tooth and Sir Grafton Elliot Smith, a distinguished English anatomist, he commissioned a painting which was given a two-page spread in the London Illustrated News. You know, you can imagine him going to these people and saying, can you draw the creature that this tooth used to come from? And the man said, yeah, I'll draw his wife as well while I'm at it. And so he draws Mr. and Mrs. Nebraska Man. You know, they went back, I think it was five years later, was it? Yes, five years later, and they found the rest of the animal. Turned out it was an extinct pig. It wasn't an ape, it wasn't a man, it was an extinct pig. That's a case of a pig making a monkey out of an evolutionist. But let's go back to Lucy. What are the similar features between Lucy and man? Well, the shape of the jaw is somewhat similar. But that wouldn't be conclusive proof because there's a wide range of shapes of jaws in humans and chimps. The size of the teeth were somewhat similar, but again that wouldn't be conclusive because there are various types of apes that have similar teeth to humans. The biggest play that they gave was on the femur. You'll notice the angle is coming in. Normally an ape, their legs go straight down and when they walk, they have to walk from side to side otherwise they'd fall over. We don't have to do that because we've got an angle about nine degrees going in. So when I lift this foot up, I can still stand up because my centre of gravity is almost directly under my body. And so they said that Lucy had a 15 degree angle and therefore she was on the way to walking on two feet. Well, there are several problems with that. Although gorillas and chimps have straight legs, orangutans and spider monkeys have very similar carrying angles to Lucy. And yet, they just climb trees and they don't walk upright all the time. They can walk upright, but they are not bipedal in that sense. But let's go back to these hands. I wrote to Professor Chris Stringer. He's the head of human origins at the London History Museum. And I said, excuse me, how can you dare to put human hands and human feet on this creature when you don't have a bone to go on? And he wrote back and said, I wasn't here when Lucy was made. That was 25 years ago. Then he sent me along to look at some journals. It actually has turned out that there are several other Australopithecine skeletons throughout the world and some of them do have hands and some of them do have feet and they find out that they are long and curved just like apes and gorillas would be expected to be. Their wrists are capable of locking so they are knuckle walkers. They have different shaped ribs, a different shaped ridge cage and their skulls are typically ape-like. Charles Oxnard, who Stephen Jay Gould called our leading expert on the qualitative study of skeletons, declared the Australopithecines are now irrevocably removed from a place in the evolution of human bipedalism and certainly from any place in the direct human lineage. We trust that Mr. Penfold has enabled you to understand in simple terms the difficulties in the evolutionary theory regarding the explanations of life. Unfortunately, many people don't realize that such problems exist, and they have faith all right, but it's faith in the changing and uncertain reasonings of man. Indeed, God's Word never contradicts the realities revealed by honest science. 
we trust that you will be one of those who believe what God says to the saving of your soul. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday night, as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and a very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message, would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the Gospel Hall nearest you. Also, feel free to take a look at other literature and audio offers at anchorpointradio.com, where you can also subscribe to our Anchor Point podcast. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening, and we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that in times like these, you need a Savior. And in times like these, you need an anchor.